say, to glorify yourself, Father, that blinded eyes would be opened, that uh, broken hearts would be mended, Father, Lord, that marriages restored, Father, Lord, forgiveness given, Father, and accepted. Lord, the word alone changes our lives, Father, and so we ask that you would enter into this moment uh, and that through your spirit, Lord, you would convict the world of sin and show us our need for a great Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Mark chapter 7, we're continuing our series here in the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to finish up chapter 7 today. Uh, and, and just so for, for those who weren't here last week, here's where we landed the plane last week, right? It's that, that Jesus uh, has had this interaction with the Pharisees, right? The, the religious leaders of his day, uh, and, and he's basically called them out, right? They came to call him out, and he called them out. It's an amazing thing what Jesus does. And, and he, basically, they came to him and said, Jesus, why are your people so bad? <laughs> like, like, they didn't wash their hands. They came from the marketplace. They're eating dinner, and they didn't wash their hands. Can you believe it? And then Jesus go, kind of goes off, right? He, he kind of calls them out. He says, uh, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, you hypocrites, right? Like, like these are the people who thought they knew God better than anybody else, and it turns out they were the ones who came up short-sighted, right? And then Jesus calls his disciples away uh, and the other people with him, and do you remember what he says there, how we landed the plane last week, is that all things are clean, right? Food, he said, all, Mark puts it in the parentheses where he says, thus Jesus declared all foods clean, right? And, and Jesus' point in that was, it's not what's out there that makes us bad, it's what's in here. It's what's on the inside of a person that makes them clean, guilty before a holy God. That's where he landed the plane. He says, food is now clean. And because of this, we see this shift now in the, the ministry of Jesus, right? Because he's, he's getting ready to leave Capernaum, right? The area where he's at, where the Jewish people were. And he's going to take a trip. Look at verse 24 of Mark chapter 7. It says, from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, just uh, for geography nerds in the, in, the, in the room, this is about 20 miles north of Capernaum, where Jesus has largely based his ministry. The region of Tyre and Sidon, this was, uh, this was pagans, pagans, okay? These were heathens, heathens, right? These were unbelievers, unbelievers, right? Are you picking up what I'm laying down here, right? Like, like there were those who were pagans, right? Unbelievers, didn't believe God, didn't believe uh, the, the God of the Bible, didn't believe Abraham, didn't believe Moses. You had those idolaters, and then you had the people of Tyre and Sidon. Far and above. This is where the area where uh, the Jezebel out of the Old Testament uh, comes from, persecutes the prophet uh, Elijah, and then this is just, this is an area known for hating Jewish people. If we were to look at it on a map today, this would be in what the common day area of uh, Lebanon is. And they had a hatred for Jews. Hatred. And here we see Jesus up and leave Capernaum and to head to this area. And so the question for us this morning is why? Why does Jesus do this? Look at the rest of that verse. And, and he entered a house, verse 24, he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, 
And so Jesus is he's still in a way, right? He's, he's trying to get out of the public eye. He's trying to find some rest. This isn't the first time Mark has mentioned this in the last couple verses, right? It was uh, Jesus went on the mountain to rest, seeing his disciples struggling, right? They get to the other side, try to find rest, and the people just keep coming. And this place is no different. Jesus is in Tyre. He's inside, and, uh, and he's trying to find rest. Now, listen, this is important. That's why I kind of hammered at this home, right? Because you had the, the, the pagans, and then you had the people of Tyre, right? Like, because this will set the stage for what Jesus is about to say. This will set the stage for what Jesus is about to say, and he, he, wanted, he didn't want people to know where he was. He tried to hide himself, and yet it says he could not be hidden. And so we're left with, a, with something which appears to be a logical contradiction, right? Because we claim that Jesus is God, and if God is God, then God can do whatever he wants, right? It's simple logic. And so how do we handle this verse? If God can do anything he wants, and if God wanted to remain hidden, then why couldn't Jesus... Remain hidden. And this is, I think, where we struggle more as Christians, right? So the unbelieving world, they believe Jesus was what? Just a man, if he existed at all. Just, just a man, right? But for those of us who are Christian, we like, yeah, man, Jesus was God in the flesh. Christ incarnate, right? This is God walking amongst us. And we actually have harder time seeing Jesus in his humanity. But this is what Jesus is, fully God fully human. And so when it says that he wished to remain hidden and yet he could not, this is the human aspect of Christ. Full humanity, wanting to rest, wanting to stay away from the crowds, and yet he could not be hidden. Look at verse 25. Immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him, came and fell down at his feet. So this woman, she's heard of Jesus. Maybe the stories from Capernaum had made its way up to Tyre and Sidon. Uh, and, and there she had heard that Jesus is in the town, right? The previous verse, he tried to hide, couldn't be hidden, which means people knew he was there. And so this woman, woman hears of it, right? Pagan woman, hater of God, hears of it. And what does she do? Immediately makes haste. She, she makes a beeline to Jesus. She had heard he was there. Look at the verse. It says she heard of him. Her response was what? I'm going to come and fall down at his feet. Do you see the picture Mark's painting for us here? The previous chapter, or the previous verses, you have the, the, the spiritually clean. Those who think highly of themselves. Those who think that they know God the best. Come and argue with Jesus. Never falling at his feet, never recognizing him for who he is. These people who, who would, we would look at today and say, man, that's a godly man. That's a, that's a godly woman. We would look at him and say, man, I would want to be like that. That's who the Pharisees were. Came to Jesus and shoved their nose up at him. And here you have the exact inverse of that image, don't you? You have this pagan woman, hater of God, who, who knows she's a sinner, right? And what does she do? She comes and falls at his feet. See, the, the, the imagery Mark is painting for us between clean and unclean. And so what Mark just did, he's, he said that, that all foods are clean, that, that humans uh, are, like, it's not what's outside of us that makes us dirty or, or unclean, and yet it's what's on the inside that makes us unclean. And here is this, what the world would have said, this is an unclean woman coming and falling at his feet. I think the NIV says, in fact, as in right away, the New Living Translation says, right away that she came. 
after hearing that Jesus was in the town. Look at verse 26. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. In case you didn't realize where Mark just said we were, we're in Tyre and Sidon, right? These, these pagan people. He goes ahead and says, this was a Gentile, in case you missed that. A Gentile, a Syrophoenician woman by birth. And yet, she begged. Begged Jesus to cast out the demon from her daughter. This isn't the first time Jesus has run in with Gentiles in his ministry in the gospel according to Mark. Chapter 5, we see that he uh, cast out a demon uh, and a Gentile man there in chapter 5. But yet here, he has moved into the location of the Gentiles. And so we think, like, what, what bearing does this have? Like, why does it matter if she's Seraphonician? Well, this makes all the difference in the world with what Jesus is about to say. Again, if you miss this, then what Jesus says actually sounds quite harsh and ungodlike and unchristlike, doesn't it? But notice, she, she begs, right? This is an imperfect tense in the Greek, which means that she kept doing it. Like, it wasn't like she just walked up and said, Jesus, can you heal my daughter? And just waited. No, she was... On her face, tears in her eyes. I want you to see the picture here. And she's over and over and over again asking Christ, please heal my daughter. Begging, do something. If you are who you say you are, then do something. And ASB says she kept asking. The same story appears in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, and, and, and what Matthew tells us then is like his disciples had to say, hey, Jesus, can you do something with her? Like, can you answer her? Because she's not going to stop. She keeps asking. So the question for us is, what do we do when it feels like we're getting the silent treatment from God? What do you do when you feel like you've asked God for a prayer and he hasn't answered? Do we beat our chest and say, Psh, they need you anyway? Do we become indignant as if God owed us something? Or do we become humble, continue to plead with the maker of everything to intercede for us, to do something? The story of the Old Testament, right, is the fact that God keeps calling out to his children Israel, come on, come to me, I I care for you, get in here, listen to me, I love you. And what's the story? Like, Israel spurns God. Time and time again, they turn up their nose to God, right? We've seen it just a minute ago with the, the Pharisees. Time and time again, they ignored God, they disobeyed him. And here we have the story flipped. Gentile woman begging God, begging Jesus Christ to to heal her daughter. And he doesn't answer her. Until he does. Look at verse 27. He said to her, Let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Wow. What? 
It's the Jesus you know. It's the Jesus you've heard about preached that you've heard preached about this this Jesus. What? Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. What's Jesus doing here? He's, he's, he's speaking by way of parable, as, as he does. What's he saying? He's saying that the promise of God, like the blessings of God, if you read the Old Testament, who's it for? The Gentile or Jew? It's for the Jews. We're in Tyre, in Sidon. This isn't for you, woman. That's what he says. This is for the Jews. You're not a Jew. See the problem? Is that really what Jesus is doing now? You see, Jesus is noting that Israel was first chosen to benefit from God's rule before people from the rest of the world. We say, that's not fair. God. God alone determines what's fair. Not us. Jesus is affirming that his mission is first to the Jewish people, not to the Gentiles. This is powerful, isn't it? Like, just think about it. Like, let's, let's remove your feelings from the situation here. Because we often view God as if God should treat everybody everywhere at all times equally the same, don't we? That's how we view God. That God should treat all people always at all places at all times equally the same. And one deviation from that, we say that's unfair, God. How could you? And yet the story of the Old Testament is that God is continually choosing one person. Continually choosing one family. You see, the God that we imagine in our minds isn't always the God who is. This is why this passage of Scripture causes us so much angst. You see, God is showing that He is acting from His own free will and not out of necessity. Because if God had to act out of necessity, then He would be no God at all. He says this, and then he gives the reason that it is not right to take children from, uh, take the bread from the children and throw it to the dogs. Therefore, let the children eat first, he's saying. One translation spells this out. He says, my own family, the Jews. He, he, they, they try to clarify, what does he mean by children? You see, in this parable that Jesus is telling, he's saying that the, the Jews are the children, and the Gentiles are the dogs, the, the little puppies, the little animals. And don't imagine little fluffly you got at home. Because they didn't have domesticated pets as dogs. They didn't have domesticated dogs as pets back then. At best, dogs were scavengers running the streets. It wasn't little fluffy that you got at home. Now this woman could have said, got up, dusted herself off and said, well, forget you then. Forget you, I'm out of here. But notice what she says. Verse 28. She answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Now, how many of you, show of hands, how many of you have pets at home? How many of you have dogs at home? 
How many of you prepare a plate of food and set it next to the dinner table while you sit down to eat your dinner? I was, I was, I was worried about asking that question because some of y'all put clothes on your dogs too, but we won't go there. I've got a rule at my house. It's, it's no feeding the dog. He's got his own food. He's got his own digestion system. Uh, and that dog food is specifically curated and created for his digestion system. And yet, that rule isn't always followed in my house. Usually by me. And my youngest, who just throws her food on the floor. But my point is, it's one of the one thing, like, I'll just say this. You might, you can talk to me after you send me an email. One of the one reasons that I love having a dog is because any scraps of food we actually drop to the floor, we don't have to worry about cleaning up. It's one of the, like, the, he didn't do that. I, I don't know if I'd have him. He's got to have some utility here. And this is what she's saying. She says, even the dogs get the scraps under the table to eat. And if Jesus would have said, yeah, that's true, I'm not helping you, we would have some work to do. But notice Jesus' response. He says, for this statement, verse 29, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. You see, this is the turning point for Jesus' ministry. This is where he inaugurates. like, Like, all of a sudden, this isn't just for Jewish people anymore. The room should have erupted in praise at that. Because here's the reality. You're not Jewish. I know most of you. You're not Jewish. And the reality is that this would have been a shocking thing for Jesus' disciples to see that he's actually going to heal this woman and the next story he's going to heal this man. Like, wait, what? Like, imagine. Like, they're just standing around. He's like, yeah, like, I don't, you know, dogs. And they're like, yeah, that's right. Because you see, it's human nature to rank ourselves, isn't it? It's human nature to draw circles around, like these people are in and, and these people are out. I've got to only be nice to these people and not this. Like, that's human nature. That's what it means to be human. And yet, Jesus says, you know what? Go your way. For what you've said, your daughter is healed. And they're, not, like, they're just sitting there like, yeah, like, wait, what? Seriously? Do you know about Tyre? Do you know about Sidon? You see, Jesus was opening up the mission to non-Jewish people. You see, Jesus is for the Gentiles as well as the Jewish people. Jesus' miracle in the region of Tyre sends a similar and perhaps controversial message, which is the salvation of God is not only for the Israelites, but also for the Gentiles. We don't really feel the weight of that this morning because this is all we know is Gentile culture. All we know is idolatry. All we know is a world that hates God. And yet that God would open the door and, and the scripture would say that he actually, it's like a tree where he grafts in. He, he adds to this tree, this branch that shouldn't have been there to begin with. He grafts it in, makes it part, makes it part of the family. You and I are going to be invited into this thing that God is doing, saving humanity. Let's turn for a moment look at this last story. 
Look at verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis. We have a location switch here in verse 31, which uh, theologians and scholars have struggled with this one verse because it doesn't quite make sense. Right? If you look out on a map of where the Sea of Galilee is, and then up higher and up here, you have Sidon, uh, and then Decapolis, you have all the way over here. So what Jesus, what Mark just says, he kind of does this like horseshoe motion. Now, if you and I were in charge and we were, had the navigation system, we'd have said, just go straight. Just, this is shorter, Jesus. This path is shorter. What's Jesus doing? Jesus' intention was to drive this lesson that he just taught home for his disciples by taking them on an extensive trip through Gentile territory rather than bringing them back to their Galilean home base by the shortest and most direct route. A trip, a longer trip through threatening or unfamiliar Gentile regions outside of the Jewish homeland would give the disciples more time to think about the implications of Jesus' message and miracles. So what Mark is doing, his, his, his emphasis on geography is he's emphasizing Jesus' mission to the Gentiles. While on earth, Jesus' journeys to the Gentile territory was meant to prepare the disciples to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And here we have another Jewish or a Gentile setting here in verse 32. They brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. Notice the correlation with the last story. The woman comes, falls down at Jesus' feet, begs for Jesus to heal the disciple, to heal her daughter. Here we have these men. They bring this, uh, this, this deaf and mute man to Jesus, and they beg Jesus to ha- for help. Do something. Verse 33, And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looked up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Epapatha, that is, be open. You see, Jesus took the man aside from the crowd, privately, so as to say, like, this is not just for show. I'm not just a miracle worker. They wanted him to do it publicly, uh, and and Jesus said, we're going to go over here, and we're going to do it privately. And notice the level to which Jesus condescends to this man. This man who can't hear. This man who can't talk. Jesus uses sign language. Notice where the miracle comes in. It's after Jesus has touched him, put his finger in his ear, touched his tongue. Jesus then looks up to heaven, sighs, and says, be open. That's the miracle. So what's Jesus doing in the touching? He's communicating. Letting the man know, I'm not just here to work miracles. This is no magic trick touches his ear, spits on the ground and touches his tongue as if to say, God is going to heal you. There's one little thing in here. Notice, like, anytime Jesus has a reaction in the scriptures, you should pay attention, hone in. Like, like the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. We ask ourselves, why did Jesus weep? What kind of emotions were going on there? Look at this one. Verse 34, it says, he sighed. Why? Why did the Lord of all creation sigh? Was he upset with this man? Was he distraught with this man? Was he so tired that he just had to catch his breath? What is it? 
Now, I believe Jesus was entering into the broken humanity that he was engaging with. You see, Jesus sighed because he realized that this is not how it was supposed to be from the beginning. Jesus sighed because he realized that this man, who knows how long he had been dead, how long he had been mute, was broken. Jesus sighed because he had compassion on the man. His deep love for humanity met with the broken reality of the man. And so he sighed. This should be encouraging to each of us. How many times we look around and say, if God was good, how can there be so much evil? Listen, every time you say that, just imagine Jesus just sighing. I know, he would say. This isn't the way it was supposed to be. Every broken heart, every broken dream, every crushed spirit was not supposed to be this way. Every backstabbing, uh, every act of aggression, every sinful thing ever said about you, it wasn't supposed to be this way. It's not the way Jesus created the world. So he sighed. He looked up to heaven said, be opened. Look at verse 35. His ears were opened. His tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. The man's ears were open and his tongue was loose. Two miracles we see here, seeing, indicating that in the previous we've seen that Jesus was man. He wanted to hide away but couldn't. And yet here we see that Jesus is God giving these kind of gifts which only he could give. And he says, not to tell anyone. Someone asked me a while ago, throughout the Gospel of Mark, multiple times Jesus says, don't tell anyone. You remember early on in the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 1, I believe, uh, the, the demons recognize who Jesus is. Or the whole Gospel of Mark is, who is Jesus? The, the demons recognize it early on in the Gospel. No one else gets it. None of the disciples get it until after Jesus ascends back to heaven. Uh, and, and yet the demons get it. And when they get it, they're like, we know who you are. Son of God, Messiah. Have you come to kill us? What's Jesus doing? He, he, he binds their mouths. He says, stop talking. Here, Jesus says, don't tell anyone. Why? What's, what's, what's Jesus getting at? You see, Jesus will over and over again say that his time has not come. And he continues to veil his true identity. Because Jesus knows that the unveiling of his true identity, that he is God's son, the Messiah, will lead to his death. And so he says, keep it to yourselves. And yet they don't, do they? We don't condone their disobedience by going and sharing. Look what God has done. Look, isn't God great? We don't condone that because Jesus said, don't do it, and they did it anyway. But, but man, can we understand it. We can understand when God saved us, when God took us up out of the muck and the mire, he made us white as snow. We understand it. Those of us who know Christ. Look at the last verse here. Verse 37. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. We see the crowd's reaction. Astonishment, amazement. They're bewildered. They're blown away. Look how great God is. And it kind of harkens back, right, to, to the opening chapters of Scripture. Where God creates all the world. And what's he say about his creation? It's good. It's very good. Kind of what they're 
harkening back here that he has done all things. Jesus Christ has done all things. Well, listen, that's true today as much as it was then. Jesus Christ does all things well. Everything in your life he does well. The question is, do you realize it or now? So just a couple applications for us today and we'll close. Number one is our reactions to Christ. Did you notice that throughout these stories, these two stories this morning, there, there, was, a, there was a natural progression. One was pleading with God. In order to plead with God, you have to realize that, that you are not God. You realize that, right? In order to ask for something, you have to realize that someone has something that you don't have and you're not them. And so you have to realize that God who is who he says he is, and this, this idea that, well, you know, I prayed about that once, so I'm just going to leave it in the Lord's hands, is contrary to Scripture at times. Contrary, because this woman begged. She knew Jesus had the power. She believed that he could do what she was asking him to do, and she pleaded her case over and over again. Listen, we don't plead our case because we, in some way, think that God hasn't heard us. We plead our case because it is in pleading our case that we demonstrate our faith in Christ. Which is step two of our reaction. First is pleading, and then number two is having faith to believe it. So here, let me give you an example. Oftentimes when, when, when we get the news that someone is diagnosed with cancer, stage four, it's not looking good, pastor. What do you do? It boils down to, do we really believe that God is stronger than stage four cancer? Do we believe it? If you're a Christian, you say, absolutely. But then you're like, well, like, what about the practical side of it? Like, you know, does God still do miracles? He absolutely. Well, pastor, like, what if he doesn't and they die? What if, what if we pray for God to heal someone who's close to death and they don't and God doesn't come through? Like, won't that do more damage to God's reputation? No, 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 no. Listen, we're like the children who were thrown into the fire. What did they say to the king Nebuchadnezzar right before they, they were thrown into the fire? Anyone remember? He says, we know that our king can save us. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow our knee. Even if he doesn't, we're still going to believe in him. So here's what we do. Someone brings you a case for, uh, or stage four cancer patient, and they say, man, like, we're going to pray, and we're going to ask God to heal him. Now, listen, that's not just like, those aren't just words, okay? Those aren't just like, man, God, like, I'm just going to say this so they'll feel better, and so they'll have some sense of false hope. It's like, no, 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 we pray believing that God can actually do it. All the while saying, even if he doesn't, Jesus is enough. We plead our case. We believe that Christ can do it. And then our reaction ends with amazement and praise. The woman goes home, finds her daughter rested and well. The demon gone. The, 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 the deaf and the mute man speak and the crowds go wild. Amazement and praise. Oftentimes, this is one area where I think we lack. So most of us have no problem pleading our case with God. Most of us even actually believe that God can do it. I think where we fail primarily is we fail in our acknowledgement of the goodness of God when He comes through. Amazement and praise. 
Finally, the last application for us today is our mission should mirror the mission of Christ. You see, Jesus' trip through Tyre, through Sidon, through Decapolis, all of this proves that Jesus loves the nations, and so should we. Think of the worst people you know. Would you share Christ with them? Or you say, nah. Just earlier this week, I was on the phone with a preacher who said, you know, like I, they've asked me to kind of marry them, but, but one's black, one's white, and I usually don't do that, but for this, I'll make an exception. I was just like, brother, what are you saying? Because it's not what is out there that makes us unclean or sinful. It's what's inside that makes us sinful. Therefore, what that means is there is no distinction between black and white. We're all sinners in the eyes of God. And so the idea that that like, like whites can't marry blacks or blacks can't marry whites is ludicrous in the eyes of God. Lately, Marley has been on this kick where she loves all the boys she sees. Six years old, I'm in trouble, pray for your pastor. And so we were, we were heading out to the church earlier this week, uh, one evening, to, to grab some papers. And I was asking her about her day. It was Valentine's party earlier in the, in the week. And I was just, you know, like, talking about her schoolmates. She says that she has more boys than girls. And I said, which would you rather have more of? Would you rather have more boys or, or more girls in your class? And she kind of thought about it for a minute, kind of deep thinking. And she says, boys. I said, oh, boy. Uh, why? <laughs> here's, her, here's her answer. She says, well... When they grow up, I can pick the most handsome one to marry me. I said, Lord, have mercy. I said, honey, that's good. That's a good idea. But they need to love Christ because you're a Christian. And we marry Christians. That's the only distinguishing factor, fam. That's the only distinguishing factor. It's not race. It's not ethnicity. It's not background. Do they love Christ? And she said, yeah, Dad. They got to love Jesus. And not a different Jesus. It's got to be the same Jesus. I said, that's right. That's right. That's my girl. You see, there's nothing unclean out there. There are no people too bad. And so we open up our homes to unbelieving people, people who would disagree with us, Literally everything. We open up our doors and we say, come on in, eat some dinner. Let me tell you about Jesus. You see, that's what a Christian theology looks like. All of life is impacted by this. The friends that you meet, you should constantly be having these kind of conversations. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about what Jesus has done for me. Right? We should never withhold the good news of the gospel from anybody. To do so is a sign of aggression. To have the greatest news in all the world, that, that, what, that Christ loves you and that he died for your sins. To know that and then to, to withhold that from somebody is a sign of aggression. So whatever it is in our hearts that keeps us from doing that, whether we think that we're better than them, whether we think that they're undeserving. You see, Jesus went to Tyre. Remember that. He went there. These pagans of pagans, like they were known for their idolatry. And they hated the Jewish people, and yet Jesus went there. So there's nowhere in the world that's off limits to Christians. 
Listen, now, your company may tell you to keep that Jesus at home. You tell your company, Jesus owns this company. I'm going to bring him with me, right? We've, we've bought into the lie that in order to engage in the public square, we have to leave Jesus at home. It's not true. You see, the moment you agree with the presuppositions of the world that, that how dare you bring Jesus in here, and then you enter the room and say, well, I'll try to sneak Jesus in the back door. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. Our mission should mirror Christ's mission. Jesus cares for the nations, and so should we. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. Lord, we are all in this room, unclean men and women, boys and girls. We were God-haters before we heard of Christ and the gospel. And you opened our eyes to the goodness of the gospel and your love for us. Father, we have been changed from within. We've been given new hearts. And Father, we pray that it's with these hearts that we would carry Christ into the world, that we would be a light in a dark place. And that we would be able to sigh with people who are broken and weep with those who weep without hope. But we don't, Father. So we struggle, we pray, and we plead, and we continue on the mission you've given us all. Not just the mission of the church and the mission of the pastor and deacons and trustees. This is the mission of every born-again believer to love the world like you love them. So we pray that you would give us the strength we need to do that. We cannot do it in our own strength. We need the Holy Spirit to help us every single day, Father. Pray you'd help us this week in Jesus' name. Amen. Philip, would you lead us in turn?